This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fightback. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's being called COVID fatigue. It's also being referenced as an invincibility factor among young adults. And it's not just happening here in Ontario. Joining Jane Brown to discuss a recent bump in cases, Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alon Baseman, infectious diseases expert at the University Health Network. With the exception of the maritime provinces, all the other southern provinces are all seen an uptick in the last uh, 10, 14 days. It's very disturbing. Dr. Baseman, what are your thoughts about this? Yes, it's unfortunate that we see the cases rise recently. And one of the important things to highlight anytime cases rise is to think about what groups that's rising in, in order to figure out what the best solutions to the problem might be. I'm wondering, doctors, Dr. Sly, if some young adults feel they've been given permission to do more socializing with without physical distancing because patios are open, they're allowed a social circle, bars have opened in parts of the province. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's exactly as you say. It, uh, we have the fatigue in there as well. We also have this sort of water on a duck's back. In other words, they, they've heard it so many times. The media like you are doing an excellent job. There's people like... Uh, we are doing interviews every day, but it's going in one ear and out the other half the time. Uh, you know, the, the sun beckons, the beach party calls, uh, that great 2-4 of lager is waiting to be uh, shared around among friends, and we tend to forget, a little out of sight, out of mind, uh, the fact that there's a, there's a dangerous disease there. How can we impart that message to the younger people in our lives to make sure that they are observing physical distancing and washing their hands and belonging to one social circle and just generally being safe like they were a couple of months ago? It's an excellent question. Uh, One of the first principles I'd say is that it's important not to shame the younger people or blame the problem entirely on younger people as that is unlikely to motivate people to change their behavior as they feel that they're being targeted. Secondly, it's, uh, it's best to try to uh, use methods of communication that are most uh, easily accessible to young people, social media, social influencers, to try to inform them about the situation. It's true that people will get fatigued at this stage of the pandemic, having been uh, seven, eight months out now, and uh, people are getting tired of all the messaging. But I think uh, it's important now more than ever to normalize the behavior and to, to make people realize that this is uh, going to be what's necessary in the long term. But getting people used to that idea now is, is important. Maybe, Dr. Vaisman, it's it's the way the, of the messaging. So rather than don't do this and don't do that, uh, say you can still socialize, but you have to think about physical distancing. You can still get together with your friends, but you have to think about being apart two meters. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's really critical is that if we keep talking about restrictions and uh, restricting things, then people will inevitably find ways to get around it and, you know, have meetings in rooms or parties or at homes where they're not going to be able to follow the rules. So if you provide people with alternatives on how to safely socialize, then they're more likely to follow it than simply saying no to everything.
There's a lot of talk uh, about a second wave, a potential second wave. What leads to that, Dr. Sly? What would lead to a second wave of COVID-19 cases here in Ontario and in Canada? Well, people were for a number of months thinking about uh, the same model as influenza, but we've got really no evidence that this is seasonal at all. It's not an influenza virus, and it doesn't seem to behave like one. Instead, I think what we've got is what we must call a behavioral second wave. It's a second wave governed by people's actions, activities, and behaviors, and and the way it's going, it's not looking uh, very good at all. So the second wave is really behavioral, and therefore to reverse it back down again, it's we need to reverse those behaviors mm. and get this under check. Dr. Baseman? The other important element is, uh, is importation of cases, that if you start to open the border, you might see cases coming in, and that will definitely influence a second wave. And as a result, the government has decided to keep delaying that decision to open the border up uh, because the control in the U.S. has, of course, not been nearly as good as it's been in Canada. So this decision is very important across the world because depending on where you are, you have to consider where your citizens are going to go and where people from uh, other parts of the world might come from to your country. So you might see cases where countries are kind of creating bubbles or expanding their bubbles slowly to be able to safely do this because um, there are continues to be hotspots in the world where a lot of cases continue to arise. And if you don't do a good job of uh, blocking that, uh, that transmission into your country, then you'll definitely see a second wave as a result of that. Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases expert at the University Health Network. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. There's yet another bit of evidence that for-profit long-term care homes are worse for residents. A new study in the Canadian Medical Association Journal finds they've had worse outbreaks of COVID and more related deaths than their public or non-profit counterparts. In all, more than 5,200 residents were infected during the study period, with more than a quarter of them dying from the illness. The study suggests for-profit chain ownership could be a key factor among the worst-hit facilities. A journal commentary on the paper says it might be time to turn the system over to public and non-profit entities. Libby Snymer spoke with one of the authors of the report, Dr. Nathan Stahl, with geriatrics and internal medicine at Sinai Health. Yeah, so one of the, you know, things we saw in the public discourse early on in the pandemic was, you know, were for-profit homes uh, faring worse when it came to COVID-19 outcomes? And so we looked at this uh, using province-wide data. Um, as you highlight, um, one of the things that's important to note is that the for-profit status was not actually associated with whether a home has an outbreak of COVID-19 or not, whether the virus gets in or not. That seems to be more related to the uh, community prevalence of COVID-19 that's actually surrounding a nursing home. But once it does get into the home, that's where we see that for-profit status definitely has an effect on the outcomes observed. So for-profit homes um, compared to non-profit homes had outbreaks that were almost two times uh, larger or had risk of outbreaks that were two times larger and had, um, you know, a death rates that were 178% higher uh, when you looked at wow. for-profit homes compared to non-profit homes. And... Was that, did you, were you able to figure out, was that because of staffing? Was be, that because more of them had those, you know, four beds to a room? 
Yeah, so when we when we looked at some of the, the factors that could help explain this, um, what came out, as, as you also highlighted, were two things. One was that the older design standard of the home. So actually, Ontario's uh, first nursing home, the, the Nursing Home Act in 1972 um, was the time where they actually established design standards for the physical plant of nursing homes. And um, shockingly, you know, many of these homes still meet or even fall below that 1972 standard. And what we saw was that there were a higher proportion of for-profit homes that had these older design standards. And the other thing was a lot of them are large chain ownership. And we know from previous evidence that chain ownership uh, tends to lead to lower levels of staffing. And we also suspect that when you're dealing with chain homes where sometimes there can be 20 or 30 homes in uh, in a chain, that you know, the more sort of central, even corporate-based leadership that might be happening uh, may have been less helpful here when you really needed boots on the ground to figure out what was going on to help the home. That's interesting. Uh, and would you say it's time to turn it over to the public and nonprofit system? You know, it's a question that we've been, you know, increasingly being asked, and I think it's a worthy question. Um, there's two things that are important to note. The first is that in our study, it wasn't all for-profit homes that did badly. In fact, there were a number that actually did fine and had no outbreaks at all. If you look at the numbers um, in our study, only 42.8% of for-profit homes had an outbreak. So the majority did not have any outbreaks of COVID-19. So there are clearly good actors and there are bad actors here. That's the first uh, point to notice. And the second thing is that, you know, um, it's important to consider that nuance because I think some people have an affair, um, and I'm not going to you know get into this, but some people have a philosophical or moral opinion about how they feel about um you know, make, having for-profit entities in the long-term care sector when we're dealing with such a vulnerable population. And that's a fair point of view. But we also have to realize that um, turning it over to the province or nonprofit entities cannot simply be done overnight. And, you know, I think it's something to consider and, and to use pieces of evidence like ours in the larger conversation. But I think what's most immediately necessary is actually shoring up the homes right now um, so that they are better prepared to weather anticipated second waves, which could happen as early as weeks. And there are many things we ought to be doing. Um, the larger or longer term things about, you know, should we remove for-profit entities? Should we nationalize long-term care? How much should we rebuild? How much should we retrofit? Those are all very important conversations, but there are immediate things that also need to be happen that need to happen, and that can't be lost in this conversation. Dr. Nathan Stahl with Geriatrics and Internal Medicine at Sinai Health. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It was a bombshell. After assuring us he had paid for all his family's expenses on trips with We Charity, Finance Minister Bill Morneau admitted he forgot about $41,000 and wrote a check to cover it just before his testimony this week. The Ethics Commissioner is investigating, but the political damage is more severe. Joining Libby to discuss... Two conservatives who serve on the relevant committees, ethics critic Michael Barrett and Michael Cooper, the party's deputy shadow minister for finance and a member of the finance committee, along with strategists Ashton Arsenault and Kim Wright. Mr. Moore should be in quite a bit of trouble because uh, based upon his testimony, he admitted to breaching multiple sections of the Conflict of Interest Act. Uh, But then we learned, shockingly, that uh, Bill Morneau had uh, gone on 
vacations paid for by the Wee Foundation to exotic locations like Kenya and Ecuador, he and his family, and that just by coincidence, he uh, happened to forget all about it, didn't even know anything about the $41,000 until uh, he appeared before the Finance Committee. And uh, that's problematic because uh, the, se- the Conflict of Interest Act is very clear uh, that members uh, shall not accept uh, any gift or other advantage that might be seen to influence uh, their public office uh, in terms of the exercise of their power. And uh, even if, for whatever reason, this passes muster, which I almost certainly think it does not, uh, Morneau contravenes Section 23 of the Conflict of Interest Act, which requires that any gift or advantage be uh, exceeding $200 uh, be disclosed. Uh, Obviously, no disclosure uh, took place. Morneau is a repeat offender, and it's why uh, we have, I have called on him, and we as the official opposition have called on him to resign. He's lost the moral authority to continue as finance minister. Michael Barrett, do you think that there's a serious chance that he may be forced to resign because of this? And uh, you've called for widening the investigation. What else do you need to find out? Do I think that that he will be you know, forced to step down. I would hope that a member of cabinet, uh, a member of the Queen's Privy Council, a public office holder in Canada would would have the uh, would have the good sense and would and would respect Canadians enough that when they are uh, a a repeat offender when it comes to uh, breaking these ethics laws, that they would say, you know what? Obviously, uh, my judgment isn't sufficient to hold this role and and therefore you know I, I must resign that would be the minimum expectation based on the fact that Justin Trudeau has twice been found guilty of breaking this law and that he's being investigated now uh, again uh, it's it's unlikely that he will show the good judgment to fire his finance minister but uh, it's never too late to do the right thing I'm going to bring in Ashton Arsenault, who is Senior Consultant at Crestview Strategies, and Kim Wright, Principal of Wright Strategies. How bad is this for Morneau? It's bad. It's one of those scenarios where, you know, you you have the brain trust uh, within the Prime Minister's office and and now very much within the Finance Minister's office in in full-on hunker-down mode. And, you know, in, in one respect, it's a bit of a shame because obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic and, uh, you know, there has been uh, some fairly significant spending and I think uh, rightly justified by government to get Canadians back on their feet. And the reality is when a, when a scandal of this nature grips the government, everything comes to a grinding halt. And having been on, uh, you know, the political side of things previously in my career, uh, when something consumes government uh, in this nature, it, it, it's just an unfortunate consequence that nothing gets done. Uh, so to answer your question bluntly, how serious is it? Very. Uh, I think what you saw is a lot of damage control and public relations contradictions. Look, there's all sorts of ways this is being spun. There is not a consistent message. Both we and the government are in serious damage control. There are some very clear and definitive rules around conflicts of interest. They're in place for a reason, uh, not uh, not the least of which to make sure that uh, procurement matters and contract negotiations are are done at a level basis and that, frankly, uh, Canadians can have some sense of uh, certainty when it comes from decision-making that they are they are made in the best possible light, not uh, because of some previous 
you know, interactions. Obviously, they want to get the channel back on COVID and COVID recovery, uh, but and this is consuming far too much of their agenda. Conservative MPs Michael Barrett and Michael Cooper, along with strategists Ashton Arsenault and Kim Wright. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. One of the hardest-hit sectors of our economy has been the hospitality and tourism industry. With restrictions on flights outside of the country, are you taking up road trips to explore the province or other parts of Canada this summer? Jane spoke with Dr. Marion Ajapa, professor at Guelph University School of Hospitality, Food, and Tourism Management. With the spikes that we are seeing up and down, um, and of course, uh, they've just reported that we've gone over 200 cases once again after a month of being below. People still are very, very anxious. And um, the research that is being conducted by the various governments actually shows that the vast majority of Canadians feel that we're opening up too fast. And so people are anxious. And even though we have now gone in, in many parts uh, to this, this uh, level where we can go back to restaurants and bars, um, indoor restaurants, uh, because we've been able to go to patios for a while, um, people are very concerned about it. They're not ready. They're, they're psychologically not ready to go back to places with crowds. Uh, let's talk about, uh, Dr. Japa, the travel and tourism industry, how it's been decimated by the pandemic. Yes. Uh, well, the airline industry, first and foremost, um, we often don't understand how uh, much we rely on airlines in this country, both domestically and internationally, and the role that they play. And so for them to have basically lost 80% of, of their uh, numbers of, of, tra- of travelers is, is absolutely devastating. And um, internationally, they are so down because that's, that's the gravy for them. Uh, domestically, they can't, even though we as Canadians complain about prices in Canada for flying, they actually don't make as much on domestic travel as they do on international travel. So the closed borders have been uh, the real problem for them, um, and of course, domestically as well. Let's talk about travel options in Ontario, just to get away for a little bit and feel safe doing it. Well, uh, in Ontario, hyper-local travel is still the way most people are enjoying the province. Uh, and by hyperlocal, you're basically staying in and around your own community, maybe within one to two hours. So they're day trips, um, little outings, a lot into sort of the rural areas, conservation areas, uh, because outdoor is safer than indoor, and it's easier to physical distance when you are in a, in a park setting or, uh, you know, on the ravines, that kind of thing. But often, um, these, the smaller communities that are in those regions are actually feeling overwhelmed by the number of visitors because they don't have the wherewithal, uh, to cope with a sudden influx, especially on a nice sunny day, people showing up. So in some areas, it's actually causing a little bit of stress, 
um, and, and people are concerned about visitors coming in. Based on your expertise, what kind of timeline do you think we're dealing with here in terms of getting back to normal travel? I suppose a lot of it is dependent on when there is a vaccine for COVID-19. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it is also uh, certainly for the, the sort of more local intra-provincial and, and maybe inter-provincial travel, it is more dependent on the numbers going down um, and, and seriously down. Um, even 200 seems high to many people. We need to see responsible behavior by uh, our friends, colleagues and by businesses. Dr. Marian Joppa, professor at Guelph University School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. If you've been receiving the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, over the course of the pandemic, you'll likely have learned by now that it's taxable and that the government will be issuing a T4A slip for it. Will you have the money set aside to pay back the tax owed on CERB, which has been given out as a payment of 2000 a month? This is just one of the many concerns Canadians have had when it comes to managing money during COVID. Joining Jane Brown on Monday, Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group, Hollis Wealth. Well, the CERB, as you've said, it is taxable. I think um, some individuals, at least at the beginning, uh, when they first started to receive it, I don't think they knew this. You know, unlike most people, when you get, you know, your paycheck, you get taxes taken off right up front. With the CERB, you get the full amount of 2000 or 500 per week, 2000 per month. And then at the end of the year, you're going to have to settle up with the, with the government. And I know there have been uh, some slight changes regarding taxation. I believe federally, anything less than 48.5, if I'm not mistaken, you're looking at paying back about 15%. So if you're getting the full $8,000, you're looking at about $1,200. Uh, taxes that would have to be paid back. Uh, and then, of course, you have, depending on where you live across the country, what province you live, there are provincial uh, taxes as well here in Ontario. I believe uh, roughly another just over $400 will be paid. So about 1600 of that 8000 if you're receiving the full amount. I think Quebec is probably the highest province, I believe. And they're looking at paying an extra 1200 on top of the 1200 They would have to pay from a federal standpoint. So they're paying a little bit more than we are here in Ontario. So overall, there's definitely some management of, uh, I guess, the money that you're receiving. Some, I guess, some management is necessary, some budgeting to make sure that you have the funds to be able to pay it back if you are receiving uh, the uh, the full amount. And of course, keep in mind for, for some individuals, if this is the only money that you will be receiving. Obviously, uh, you're, for every individual, you're tax exempt up to roughly twelve, thirteen thousand. 13000 So if the 8000 is everything that you receive, right. then you actually will be fully exempt and won't have to pay any tax. So just depends. Everyone's situation is different. Is that why, Alan, that the government did not take tax off CERB to begin with? Be- because so. everyone's different? So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it makes sense for everybody to settle out come April. And we don't know, or I should say the government doesn't know everybody's tax situation. And of course, they wanted to get the money out as quickly as possible. And that's why over the past few months now, we've been hearing about a number of 
cases that have popped up where individuals have been getting served or other, uh, uh, I guess, government programs and receiving the money, and perhaps they should not have received the money. And so there has been, uh, I think, a lot of talk about these individuals giving back their serve or paying back some of these uh, the monies that they've been receiving that they shouldn't have. So a lot has been going on over the past, oh, let's call it last couple of months. There are a lot of us who did not lose our jobs, who continue to be paid, who have not gone on vacations, who for a long time did not go out for restaurant meals and ended up, ironically, having a bit of a slush fund as a result and having a bit of a pandemic savings, so to speak. What is the safest way, the best way to invest this extra bit of money that some of us may have accumulated? Yeah, and it's interesting. We're seeing a lot of those types of individuals. Uh, I talked to many saying, you know what? I actually have more money in my pocket now than, than three months ago, which is, which is <laughs> very ironic. So for those types of people, it really comes down to their risk tolerance, their investment time horizon, what they're comfortable investing in. But for many people that I've talked to, buying simple income generating investments, whether it's dividend income or other types of income, that has seemed to be, that, that seems to be the place people want to go to whether it's owning a very simple investment in a bank, the Canadian bank, shares of TD bank, for example, something like that, something that's going to pay you something, an income, while you wait for all this stuff to sort itself out. It seems to be the investment of choice for many. But keep in mind, these investments are volatile, can be volatile, so not for the faint of heart at times. And you just want to make sure whatever investments you choose, it's the right risk level for you. But there are a lot of things that are that have been cheap, and are still cheap, and that uh, investors are, are, are moving towards. And I think if you have some money to invest right now, it's a pretty good time to do so. Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group, Hollis Wealth. To find out more, go to alansmall.com. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who also weighed in on not traveling at this time. I don't foresee any travel plans as yet. I think it's too early. Uh, I'm fearful of circumstances on the road where I don't have the kind of control I have when I'm at home. And with respect to flying, uh, for myself and those I know who love to travel, I, they don't see getting on an airplane uh, any time in the new fu- future, if at all going into the future, for two reasons. One is the COVID and the safety, but the whole airport experience uh, for seniors is now so overwhelming that uh, it, it, it just doesn't seem worth it. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick. Join Jane Brown next weekend when she'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.